This is I'm Really Rich Forbes on Trump on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Maggie McGrath. On this show, we're diving into the world of Trump through the eyes and ears of Forbes reporters. We'll focus on the 45th president's impact on the economy, business, and wealth here in America and around the world. President of the United States is a pretty significant job title. One of the most significant, in fact. But our current president, Donald Trump, had, at least for the first several weeks of his term, a second job title. That of executive producer of Celebrity Apprentice. In this episode, we'll talk about what that means exactly. Joining us now is Madeline Berg, a reporter covering the entertainment industry for Forbes. Maddie can tell us more about Trump's executive producing duties, or perhaps lack thereof. So Trump was actually an executive producer on the new Celebrity Apprentice, which is hosted by uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, or it was, for the first two months of his presidency. Busy man. Let's take a step back because we speak the industry jargon and not everyone does. What does an executive producer do? So an executive producer can have a ton of roles. Larry David, for example, was the executive producer of Curb Your Enthusiasm. He was the star. He was the creator. He was the writer. He was everything. Trump's role is, he said, more hands off. He said that in December after he was elected. And he basically just has a financial stake in the show is what we're going to assume. He helped create the show. He helped generate the ideas for the show. And he still owns a piece of that show. Think of it as um, having a piece of a business where you get profit. So because he was involved in the original Apprentice, yes, the one that everyone knows, he's still partially involved in in what is on air now. Exactly. Think of The Apprentice as a product. He owns a piece of that product. And anytime NBC or another country, a television station in another country licenses that, he gets a little bit of the money. So it's not necessarily like he's conducting production calls from the Oval Office. Probably not. Well, he was also tweeting about it, too. I I was about to say, I think that his main role this season was just tweeting that Arnold Schwarzenegger didn't live up to his stature as host. Well, everyone has their opinion. (laughs) Now, you mentioned a financial stake. I, I know these things can be murky and sometimes a little hard to break down. But from your reporting and what you know, how much money is he getting from this? You know, we're really conservative when we look at this. I would say that while he was president, so for this last season um, of the new Celebrity Apprentice, he would have gotten between six and seven and a half million dollars conservatively. Um, He would have gotten a per episode fee. Now, while he was the host, that per episode fee could have been nearly uh, half a million dollars. But now that he only has the back of camera role, the executive producer fee would probably be closer to a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars per episode. Not pa- pocket change, but not as big as what he used to be getting. And also, um, he would have gotten a percentage of any profits brought in by the show. You know, that could be from product placements. Uh, Carnival Cruise, for example, they stuck with the show the whole time, and they would pay to have their name dropped in challenges or little little cuts to cruises during the show. He would also get any profits from licensing fees that was left over um, that weren't used to pay out cast, crew, etc. Now it's a per episode fee that he gets? So it's a per episode plus a percentage of the overall leftovers. And I I believe we were talking and you said that this, I admit I don't watch The Apprentice anymore, but this season, the most recent season that uh, coincided with the early days of his presidency, it was fewer episodes than prior seasons? Exactly. So his that would have really been a pretty big cut. 
in previous years when there maybe would have been 16 or 30 episodes of The Apprentice, depending on how many seasons, he would have made anywhere between 19 and $25 million just from this one show in a year. So that the big deduction has to do with, A, the number of episodes, B, the fact that he's not hosting, and C, the fact that a lot of products actually ended up not wanting to sponsor the new Celebrity Apprentice because of people knew it had Trump's name attached to it. And reputation. Exactly. Now, we don't know what's happening going forward, right? Arnold Schwarzenegger is not going to be the host anymore? He is not. Um, there has been talk that he's going to run for some sort of office again, the governor. But um, <laughs> the show did not do well. The show had been... Uh, declining in ratings for a while now um it was a huge hit when it first um started but like american idol like other reality shows definitely started to to fall um but but there was a 36.5 percent decline in viewers and a 44 percent um drop of ratings in the lucrative uh 18 to 35 demo and that's the one that advertisers want to reach. Exactly, we're the ones who spend the money. Exactly. So without without that, you know, NBC might want to continue with the franchise. They also may not want to because Trump's name will likely be attached no matter what. And NBC has already cut ties with Trump in terms of the pageants and other. It's it's murky waters when you're connected to the president. So. Do we know if there's going to be another season? We don't. And I've reached out to NBC and I've also reached out to MGM and they haven't um, responded. But even if NBC decides, oh, we don't want to spend money on this, MGM could go ahead and chop it to any other station. Um, They're international versions of The Apprentice. So I don't think Trump is going to stop getting money from the show anytime soon. Now, in terms of prior presidents that have come into office and had connections to the entertainment industry... Trump is not alone. We had Ronald Reagan, who was an actor, and you found that Obama continued to reap royalties from his books, correct? Yeah, um, a lot of presidents presidents have uh, reaped royalties while in office. Obama is, you know, the most recent example, but he was not the first. And then Ronald Reagan would have still been paid royalties from his films while he was in office. What's different is that... um, Trump is now making money due to a connection to a broadcast news network. There are only three of those. They're pretty sacred when it comes to TV. And they're sacred also in the sense that they're supposed to be pretty neutral. And while NBC um, has been very firm that it's that, that just because it's broadcasting The Apprentice does not mean Trump has any influence over the news coverage, it still can, can give the appearance that maybe NBC would have an unfair advantage and an unfair connection to the presidency um, that the other networks don't have. And it could produce criticism for NBC news content. I know there was some outcry when then-candidate, now-President Trump hosted SNL. And then Jimmy Fallon had that infamous interview where he ruffled Trump's hair. Absolutely. I think NBC News definitely does not want to fall into the camp that CNN did during the the campaign where its, its reputation is hurt because it looks like they're kind of cozying up to the president. That was entertainment reporter Madeline Berg talking about Trump's role with The Celebrity Apprentice. Next up, we have the Forbes Southwest Bureau Chief Chris Hellman in town from Houston to talk us through the Trump administration's energy policies. So you and I have been chatting a little bit about how folks in Houston feel about President Trump and his energy policies. Uh, just let's start broad. What's the sentiment down there? They love it. 
<laughs> they think it's great. And I, I talked to a lot of oil and gas industry executives, and they all felt that President Obama was just against them in every which way. He was trying to stop them from drilling and fracking more wells in America. And they, they always tended to forget the fact that under the Obama administration, American oil and gas production boomed. You know, it just exploded. We we doubled the amount of oil produced in America during the Obama years. So those were very good years for the industry, but now they hope that Trump is going to make it even better. He's going to make oil great again. That's what Harold Hamm thinks. Um, he's the, the CEO of uh, Continental Resources and uh, a longtime fixture on our Forbes 400 list. Um, he was one of Trump's energy advisors during the campaign, and, and he just thinks Trump's great. He wants he wants to be free to drill wherever he wants to without worrying about air quality and water and all that stuff. So he thinks that if, if Trump can dismantle some of these Obama regulations, it'll be good for his industry. And I know that that frightens a lot of the rest of the country. It frightens me, too, because I think that climate change is something that, that we need to worry about. And what surprises me is that you know, I was talking recently to the C- the new CEO of ExxonMobil, Darren Woods, and we were getting into the, this conversation and talking about climate change, and he said, you know, I think that climate change is real. You know, this is odd coming from ExxonMobil. You, you think that, you know, they're the ones who want to produce more oil and destroy the world. But <laughs> Exxon does feel that climate change is a real problem, but they think that technology is the way to solve that problem, not regulation. So Exxon's point of view, for instance, is, you know, we're going to invest more in, in getting oil out of algae and creating new battery technologies and fuel cells. And the quote from, from Darren Woods, the CEO, is that technology can solve this problem. We're going to keep investing. And by the way, it's Exxon researchers who invented the lithium-ion battery back in the 70s. So he seems to think that they have a, a pedigree in, in helping to, to solve the carbon emission problem rather than add to it. You know, take, take that as you will. But they do seem to believe what they say. Um, I, I think that we will be surprised, however, over the Trump presidency, that carbon emissions in the United States continue to go down, regardless of what he does. You know, he's working to scrap Obama's clean power plan. He's working to scrap all these other rules that that the administration put in place. But my feeling is that the United States is on this trajectory to reduce the amount of carbon that we emit. And just because Trump is breaking Obama's climate legacy, that does not mean that we're going to get off of that trajectory. Well, I think we're starting to see companies stepping in where the government might have, under Obama, tried to put forth solutions. So you actually just spoke with uh, someone at Budweiser, um, and green beer isn't just a St. Paddy's Day thing? Is that the takeaway? That that is. And I found this really interesting, because these multinational companies like AB InBev, which is uh, the parent company of of Budweiser, um, they're determined to use zero fossil fuel energy for their electricity needs by 2025. That's only seven years away. This is a huge amount of electricity that they intend to get from solar and and wind and all these other sources. And this matters to them because they're a multinational company. 
and the countries that they operate in are going to abide by the 2015 Paris Agreement, the UN Agreement on Climate Change. So they know that all these other countries that they operate in, they're going to have to reduce their reliance on fossil fuels. They're not going to stop those trends just because Trump is dismantling Obama's legacy. Um, so they're, they're determined to make that change by adding a lot more. Well, what, what they're doing is they're, they're financing the, the creation of wind farms and solar farms, and they're investing in battery technology so that when uh, electricity prices from wind farms are cheap in the middle of the night, they can charge their batteries and then use that power during the day. And I think this will have a huge impact over the next 10 years on continuing to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels and continuing to reduce our, our carbon emissions. If you look at the numbers from uh, the U.S. government, I'm surprised to see this. The United States carbon emissions peaked 10 years ago oh, in, wow. two th- in 2007. And since then, they've fallen 15%. So this is a huge, it's a very big reduction in our carbon emissions. And that trend is not going to suddenly change just because of what what Trump thinks. So companies will be leading the way. And do you think because these are huge multinational companies, they might have an effect on smaller companies? Oh, yeah. No, whatever AB InBev does and whatever ExxonMobil may or may not do will really set the tone for all of global industry, I think, because... It's good. It's good PR. It's good for their. They say it's going to be good for their bottom line. When I talked to the the CEO of AB InBev, Carlos Brito, my first question to him was, "How in the world are you going to make this change to 100% renewable electricity without spending a lot more money?" And he said, "Easy. Look at the deal that we just signed in in Mexico. We're financing this wind farm, and we're going to get." 20 years of electricity at a price that's 20% cheaper than what we've been paying to buy power from the grid. So he's he's determined to make deals that will uh, will provide yeah, beer beer breweries and beer distributors with greener electricity over the long run at a lower price. That he thinks it's possible. So interesting. Well, to be determined, I, yeah, I guess. Yeah, we'll see. And the other thing that you've said to me is we talk about big multinational corporations as having an effect, but the two of the largest states in America lean blue. Mm-hmm. So if all the other states were to not abide by uh, energy regulation, New York and California might step up and fill the gap. Oh, yeah, for sure. As California goes, so goes the nation eventually. It just takes an extra generation. Um, even if Trump dismantles federal level carbon regulations, the states will pick up the slack. There's no reason to believe that California is going to back away from its renewable fuel standard. In in fact, they'll probably get even more stringent. So California will continue to lead the way in in getting electricity from from solar and and wind. And yes, you need to subsidize these technologies still. But Solar, for instance, the cost of investing in and installing utility-scale solar has dropped from about, it's dropped in half roughly over the last three years, and it's going to continue to fall because there's just such an oversupply 
coming out of China of, of cheap manufactured solar panels. The same thing holds for battery technology. Thanks in part to, you know, this is ironic, but thanks to low oil prices, there's been less demand for electric cars. And if there's less demand for electric cars, that means there's all this extra battery capacity, uh, manufacturing capacity for batteries that instead is going to go into, you know, industrial and commercial building applications. You know, so we're seeing more batteries being installed in um, office buildings and factories and, and warehouses because those batteries are not going into vehicles. So just because we're not seeing this big uptick in, in Tesla purchases yet, um, those batteries are still going into the, the economy. They're still being connected to the power grid. And we're seeing um, vast reductions in the, the cost of, of these big batteries that can... You have the batteries that work with the wind farms and the solar panels to really smooth out the, uh, the production of this, this renewable energy. And that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So we might not be seeing it on the automobile consumer side, but it's helping power oh, office buildings. And, right. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, when I was working on that story about the Budweiser's plans, I talked to um, the CEO of a company called STEM. They're based in San Francisco. Their whole business is building these battery banks for big companies. So you've got this giant bank of batteries. might go in the basement somewhere. And... Their whole setup, they have the software that is constantly watching the power grid. And if there's ever a time of day when power prices spike, their software can just instantaneously stop taking the power from the grid and substitute power from these batteries. So that way the, the building owners can also save money on their, their power purchases by using these big banks of batteries. I thought it was a really neat idea. And um, this guy, John, John Carrington, the CEO of STEM, is convinced that within 10 years, every commercial building is going to have a bank of batteries for exactly this purpose. That could be huge, you know? Out in, in Brooklyn, he said that they're working on a project which for $200 million worth of batteries, roughly, they're going to get rid of the need for the borough to build a 1.2 billion dollar power station you know because it's, it's going to save so much electricity and move the electricity demand from the middle of the day to nighttime when power prices are cheaper fill up the batteries at night use the power during the day and you don't need to invest a billion dollars for a new uh, a new power plant it's pretty cool as a new york city taxpayer i like the sound yeah, of that right and also, would that prevent a power surge and therefore a citywide power outage if enough people start using this battery technology? I, I think it could. You know, hopefully it never comes to that. We should, <laughs> you know, since I, I was in New York uh, during the great blackout of 2003 or four. do you mm-hmm. remember that? I do. Oh, my gosh. That was, that was a crazy evening. And it really drove home, for, for me, you know, while walking home across the Brooklyn Bridge with tens of thousands of other people, we were like, Oh my gosh, we really do rely on this power grid more than <laughs> we ever we ever managed ever imagined. Um, so I, hopefully we've hardened the grid since then. But who knows? We could, we could have another Hurricane Sandy. And you could have some sort of terrorist attack. And if we all have these battery banks in the basements of our buildings, it would it would really help to uh, to ensure the reliability of our our power supply. 
Switching from clean batteries mm. to coal. Now, that was something that Trump mentioned on the campaign. I think people, some people who are hurting in this economy are because they've seen coal jobs disappear. Mm-hmm. And then you have people on the other side saying, that's crazy. We're never going to be coal dependent again. So what's your take on coal? Is is Trump going to bring all the coal back and make it like the 1950s again? No. <laughs> For a very simple reason. Um, the, the fact is that over the past 10 years, um, drillers in the United States have discovered so much natural gas. Natural gas, when you burn it, it, it emits... Um, two-thirds of what coal does. So your, your carbon emissions savings is about 35 to 40 percent by burning natural gas instead of coal. We just don't need coal anymore. Um, and a lot of that reduction in America's carbon emissions over the past decade that I mentioned earlier, most of that is tied to switching over from coal to natural gas. We're going to continue that trend. Um, natural gas has been cheap for years now. It's going to continue to be. It's so cheap that we've started exporting huge amounts of natural gas to the rest of the world. Um, so I'm sorry to say that the coal people, they've got a hard few years ahead, no matter what Trump tries to do. Um, there might be a market for North American coal overseas. I'm working on a story about a uh, another Forbes 400 member named Chris Klein, He's a, like a third-generation coal miner out of, out of West Virginia, and he just opened up a brand-new coal mine in Nova Scotia, of all places. Wow. You know, he's got, he had lots of mines in Illinois and West Virginia, but his new mine, he invested uh, tens of millions of dollars on this mine in Nova Scotia just so that he can export this coal to Europe, which is, you know, Nova Scotia is quite a lot closer to uh, Europe than, uh, than Appalachia or Illinois. And the reason why Europe has a demand for coal now is because after the Fukushima disaster, uh, countries like Germany, they backed away from nuclear power, which, of course, is the only you know, large-scale base load provider of zero-carbon electricity. So you know, Germany was kind of going backwards, and now, uh, now investors like Chris Klein are trying to sell their North American coal over there just because there's not as much demand for it on this continent anymore. Maybe there's going to be a few instances of new mines opening or old mines reopening in order to export coal, but I think that's only on the margin. And you've also said that the industry is excited about eastern seaboard oil drilling. <laughs> well, this this week, um, Donald Trump signed an order that would open up, I think it's about 4 million acres of Atlantic Ocean off the eastern seaboard to exploratory drilling. There's a long, it's going to be years before anything ever happens because this is something that Obama signed executive orders, you know, banning all future drilling in these areas. So he's trying to undo more of Obama's legacy. Um, The thing is, every energy company is going to say, yeah, great, give us more opportunities to drill, you know, places where we haven't been able to before. But honestly, they're not going to invest a lot drilling off of you know, New Jersey because they have such great opportunities in the rest of the country. 
you know, we've discovered a lot of natural gas. We've also discovered a lot of new oil supplies in the United States, especially out in West Texas and the Permian Basin, where, you know, they've been ramping up drilling in the last six months, even at these low, you know, relatively low oil prices of $40, $50. They can make good money out in West Texas. And this is a place where they've been drilling for oil for 100 years now. There's lots of infrastructure. There's lots of workers. There's pipelines. There's everything that you need to be an oil company is already there. So they're not going to drop their opportunities there to go drill offshore off of New Jersey because there is no infrastructure there. There's no workers who can man these rigs. They'd have to bring people in from you know, Louisiana, from the Gulf of Mexico. So I don't think that's a big deal. It's more of a, a political showmanship than it is a, a real future source of oil supply for America. So if I'm at the Jersey Shore, I don't have to get worried if uh, there's a, an oil rig out I, there? If there's any oil on the beach there, it's probably from natural seepage, which is something I've always found, you know, sadly funny about in California. If you go to Santa Barbara on the California coast today and you walk on the beaches there, there's lots of tar balls still. Really? But the tar balls are from naturally occurring seeps of oil. This is oil that's, there's so much oil off the coast of California where they're not allowed to drill either that it just kind of seeps up out of the earth and into the water and ends up on the beach. Um, and ironically, if if they were to allow more drilling off the coast of California, they could suck all that oil up and there wouldn't be as many as many seeps anymore. But, you know, don't expect California to, to allow that anytime soon. Yeah, I'm not going to hold my breath mm. on that one. Mm. So big picture, mm. you have, like just about every other issue, it seems right now, one side freaking out that mm-hmm. everything's going down the drain and then you have another side that's exuberant at the chance of deregulation broadly speaking is the truth in the middle is it neither catastrophe nor don't exuberance freak out. <laughs> please don't freak out um, we have plentiful energy supplies in this country whether it's fossil fuels or renewable energy um, texas is big in oil and gas but it's also the biggest source of wind power of any country in the world right now just you know texas alone so even even countries that are cons- sorry states that are con- texas thinks it's a country sometimes <laughs> but um even states that are decidedly pro trump and very red they are still on the renewable energy train and they're not going to get off because they see it as an economically viable addition to the the broader energy mix. That was Southwest Bureau Chief Chris Hellman talking about the Trump administration's energy policies. Hey, I'm John Horn. This week on Geffen Playhouse Unscripted, we are joined by Josh Josh Gad. And as much as he wants you to believe that none of it is scripted, I'm telling you that even my name is in a paper in front of me and I'm reading it. And everything that I'm saying right now, I'm also reading. This is very meta. And it's phonetically spelled out, so you it's know how to say all Josh phonetically. Gad. And for some reason, it's also in Spanish. Yo soy Josh Gad. It's called Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. You could download it on the Podcast One app. You can hear it on Apple Podcast Or at podcastone.com. You are done. Thank you very much. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day kind of good. Phone charge to 100% good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a Trunk Club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. 
look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. In this segment, we're going to switch it up a little bit. I'm calling in from Skype because I'm reporting from Washington, D.C. and the Forbes D.C. office. I came to D.C. this week to attend an event with Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin ahead of the administration's release of Trump's tax reform plan. I went to an event in the morning on Wednesday, April 26th, and at that event, Secretary Mnuchin said he gave a broad overview of the tax reform plan. He called it the biggest in history. He confirmed that there would be a corporate tax rate of 15%, which is significantly lower than the current 35% rate that businesses pay. But he told us in the audience to sit tight, we'd get more details later. Well, it's later and we don't know much more. Wednesday afternoon, uh, Secretary Mnuchin and um, the head of the National Economic Council, Gary Cohn, said a few more details. They said the plan would cut the number of individual tax brackets from seven down to three. The rates will be 10 percent, 25 percent and 35 percent. But they did not provide information on what income levels would correspond to each bracket. They said the plan would double the standard tax deduction for individuals and would eliminate many itemized deductions, though one deduction that will remain is the charitable deduction and the mortgage deduction. Here to talk more about the mortgage deduction is real estate reporter and staff writer Sam Scharf. Sam, thanks for taking my seat in the studio. Thanks for having me, Maggie. All right. So you've been on the phone with real estate experts over the past two days. Uh, Let's start broad. How are they feeling? There's a wide array of opinions. Uh, The initial and loudest response has come from the National Association of Realtors, which is not happy. So on the surface, you would think that they got to keep the mortgage interest deduction. That should be great. That encourages homeownership. However, they feel that by doubling the standard deduction and some of the other deductions that it appears will be taken out, that you kind of nullify the mortgage interest deduction. So the way the president of the National Association of Realtors put it, the mortgage interest deduction and the state and local tax deduction make homeownership more affordable. Now jumping ahead a bit, those tax incentives are at risk in the tax plan released today. Current homeowners could very well see their home values plummet and their equity evaporate if tax reform nullifies or eliminates the tax incentive they depend on, while prospective homebuyers will see that dream pushed further out of reach. So that is an extreme view. Many within the industry take a more moderated view that if this does in fact put more money into potential homebuyers' pockets, some of that money will go into home buying. So it's a, it's a bit of a mixed bag. And one of the things you referred to is the deduction for state and local taxes. And that seems to be a big point of confusion right now. What do we know? Because I think some interpretations, uh, by doubling the standard personal deduction and simplifying the tax code, which the administration has said it is its goal. You know, we are working very diligently with the House and the Senate on coming up with final details of the bill. You're going into very micro details on, on some of these. Important. Very important. We agree. Very important. You know, our, our basic premise here is to simplify the tax system, lower rates, and make it easy. We don't want to penalize people. We want to make the system very fair. 
That is, that is one of the things on our list that we're going to work on, just as Secretary Mnuchin said. We will get back to you with, with defi- definitive answers on all these details. They've talked about wanting to eliminate deductions that people take for the state they live in, uh, which is of concern to people in New York, New Jersey, and California especially. Uh, so you've been hearing from people who say if that comes to pass, that, that could be a problem for home buyers. Yes. Uh, so what we know is that in this one sheet explainer that the administration gave out in its announcement yesterday, the only deductions, as you pointed out, that they promised they want to keep are the charitable deduction and the mortgage interest deduction, which are two of the most popular. It is very unclear what happens to everything else. But in terms of the state and, and local, the going assumption is that that would go. And Real estate experts are concerned about that because they feel it might push people from high tax states to lower tax states. Uh, what do you mean by that? That they'd be pushing people from high tax states to low tax states? Like, are, do they think there's going to be an exodus out of California and to Alabama? There is some thought that by removing the state and local tax deduction, you would start to see a lot of relocation. Basically, it causes the effective state and local tax burden to be higher. So someone who lives in a high-tax state like California or New York could face a higher tax bill and choose to leave. Whether New York has had high taxes for a long time and a lot of people still live here. So whether that will actually happen is remains to be seen, but it does give people an incentive to move. Let's take a step back. In your story yesterday that you posted in the wake of the, the announcement, or I guess what we can, the, the outline of a plan that they announced, uh, you talked about how much homeowners can deduct now. I'm a renter, and for other renters who are listening, just how valuable is the mortgage interest deduction as it exists at this moment? So the mortgage interest deduction is the most popular deduction. That said, only about 20% of taxpayers take it. But for the 20% that do take the mortgage interest deduction, it can be worth a lot. So you can deduct interest on mortgages valued up to $1.1 million. Wow. That doesn't mean you can deduct $1.1 million, but you can deduct the interest on that mortgage. And it was not immediately clear if the administration intends to change that cap or, or anything about the deduction. So in 2014, which is the most recent data available from the IRS, about 33 million people claimed the mortgage interest deduction um, for a total deduction of about $287 billion, which is close to $9,000 in deductions each. And that works out to a savings of over $2,000, of course, the larger your mortgage, the more interest you're paying, the more you're deducting. So it becomes, it is more valuable, the more valuable your home. One of the interesting things about Wednesday's announcement is in the run-up to unveiling a grand tax plan, and again, I should reiterate that this seems more like an outline than a comprehensive plan, but one of the things that the Treasury Secretary had said was it does not constitute a tax cut for the 1%. He's been saying that a lot uh, to the point that it's kind of been coined the Mnuchin rule, that the administration doesn't want to cut taxes for the the top percent, of the wealthiest Americans, I should say. But what's interesting about this is, as you pointed out, 
the more valuable your home, the more interest you are paying if you have a mortgage on that home. So therefore, the more you can deduct. Therefore, at least part of this plan seems to benefit the wealthiest Americans. Am I getting that somewhat right? There are definitely many economists that agree with that assessment. One that I spoke to, Neela Richardson, who is an economist at a real estate company Redfin, pointed out that the mortgage interest deduction is already mostly used by higher income people because they itemize. You have if you have more costs to deduct, then you're more likely to itemize. And with a, if you raise the standard deduction, the affluent are more incentivized to buy, the way she put it, buy bigger homes with larger loans, while middle and working class people are less likely to enjoy the same benefit. So kind of what she's saying there is that currently the standard deduction is $6,300 and it changes annually with inflation. And what Trump is proposing is make that $12,600 for for an individual. So if your home is not very valuable, there's no reason for you to take the mortgage interest deduction, even though you're technically allowed to, because you can deduct more or equal amounts with the standard deduction. Whereas if you have a more valuable home and you itemizing and deducting your mortgage interest would be greater a deduction of greater than 12,600 then you have there's more savings there that makes sense and that also gets back to your point about how it could discourage people from buying a home because if i'm of middle to low income and i'm looking at a house of a perfectly fine house, but it's cheaper, so the interest isn't as much. I, there's not as much for me to deduct, so I might, in the current system, choose not to deduct that interest from my taxes and just take the standard deduction. And, and potentially, if this beginning of a plan comes through and becomes law, and I'm an aspiring homeowner, but I'm an aspiring homeowner of a house of smaller value, which is we should say is totally fine, I could then look at my taxes and think, hey, this isn't a benefit for me. Maybe I don't want this house. Exactly. It makes that rent versus buy equation a little bit different. Of course, there's a lot that goes into the decision to buy a home, and taxes are not necessarily the first thing on people's minds, but the relative value of that investment goes down. And it is a bit of an incentive. I mean, I currently pay I'm still paying back my student loans. I, I, under the current system, can take a deduction based on the student loan interest that I pay. And I've started thinking about, hmm, when these loans are gone, how am I going to replace this deduction? Well, a mortgage could do the trick, not that I have a down payment. <laughs> so th- there is a bit of an incentive there. Not that that's the only reason to buy a house, but it's, it's something. Spania Goodall, the chief economist at Zillow, pointed out to me that if the student loan interest deduction was eliminated, as is implied by this outline, people with student debt that are trying to save for a down payment, it makes it that much harder to save. If you can't deduct that, you're not getting, you're paying a little bit more in taxes and you can put less toward a down payment. She does point out that that elimination could be offset by a higher standard deduction, but it just shows how the the ripple effects of all of this are are enormous. How one thing that is seemingly has nothing to do with housing 
can impact that equation. The mortgage interest deduction is a funny thing because it's very popular with consumers, as we have said, and therefore politically popular, but economists, some economists, I should say, disagree. Uh, What's going on here? Where's the source of this disagreement? So as you said, economists broadly agree that deductions and the mortgage interest deduction in particular make not a lot of sense. They incentivize different things, and it just creates a lot of complication for people. But the mortgage interest deduction is hugely popular. There are 75 million housing units in this country are occupied by owners. So the potential user base for this deduction is huge, even though only a small percentage of those take it. So a few years ago, um, the NPR podcast Planet Money actually did an episode on six things economists agree on. And the first thing was that the mortgage interest deduction should go. Politicians hate this uh, because if you imagine, as they did, sort of a politician up there giving his stump speech and saying, I'm going to cost you a couple of thousand dollars, it's not going to go well. Um, (laughs) So in a way, the administration is being kind of clever here that they're technically keeping the deduction, but voiding it, at least for some people. That said, if the rules of who can take the deduction don't change, so that hundred, excuse me, that million dollar cap, the wealthy will still benefit, which is what many Americans already hate about the tax code and beyond the fact that they have to pay taxes. <laughs> One of the things they were saying yesterday was we want to make it so easy that you can file your taxes on a large postcard. Uh, it remains to be seen if that is one of the ramifications of, of this. Easy is nice, but all of these deductions have a constituency that values them. And so how do you pick and choose? And they've set a big task for themselves. Um, not to mention that it sounds great to say, let's simplify it. Let's In, in Estonia, you can pay taxes in like five minutes on from your iPhone. It, it sounds great to be able to do that. But we have a, a huge tax preparation industry here that will not be happy about that. And even if it sounds good, they haven't made clear how they're going to pay for this. Um, so that actually comes to another ripple effect that some of the people I've been speaking to mentioned. If they don't find a way to pay for it, that may mean the government needs to take on more debt, which could have an impact on interest rates, which then we'll pay more for a mortgage. So it's it's really anyone's guess where we go from here. Oh, wow. It's the circle of, of money, essentially. Very true. It's interesting, too, because at the event I went to yesterday after the Treasury Secretary spoke, they had a panel of tax experts, including Grover Norquist and uh, several budget experts. And they, they spanned many different political views. And I was talking to Kelly Erb, one of our senior editors on Slack, as all of this was unfolding. And she said to me, are they going to break out into a fistfight? Because they were talking about what you just said is, we're talking about huge tax breaks here, but there's not really a mechanism to pay for the lost revenue to the government if we're cutting all these taxes, at least in the proposals that we've seen. So the who will pay for it is remains one of the biggest questions I think that people have, aside from also what does this mean for me, which which we also can't answer. Right. And the administration says that the economy will grow because of these tax cuts and therefore 
it will pay for itself, but most economists agree the math doesn't work on that. This plan is going to lower the debt to GDP. The economic plan under Trump will grow the economy and will create massive amounts of revenues, trillions of dollars in additional revenues. Well, it is complicated. And I think, uh, I think because it is complicated, we will leave it there. Sam, thanks for taking my seat in our studio. And uh, say hi to everyone in New York for me while I stay in D.C. for a little while. We miss you and we'll see you soon. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this episode of Forbes on Trump. I'm Maggie McGrath. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to get in touch with a comment or a question, email us at ForbesOnTrump at PodcastOne.com. Everyone sells today. So how do you bring your best sales game every day? Simple. Listen to the Advanced Selling Podcast on Podcast One. Hi, I'm Bill Kasky. And I'm Brian Neal. Each week, we answer listener questions like, how do I compete against a cheap competitor? And Brian's favorite, because he always has an answer to this, how do I meet with a CEO when they won't even return my calls? The Advanced Selling Podcast is where the best go to get better. Listen Mondays on Podcast One and on iTunes. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our Spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our Spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border. I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.